Good morning. Welcome again to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. Well, today we continue our common Christmas together. But it isn't common in the sense of being boring or unremarkable. It's common in the sense that we're reading the biblical texts laid out in the Book of Common Prayer some 475 years ago, which countless Christians and countless churches have been reading during Advent ever since. That means that last week we found ourselves in Isaiah 2, Psalm 122, Matthew 24, and Romans 13. And when combined, those four passages reminded us that at Christmas, we don't just look backwards to Jesus' first coming in the manger. We also look forward to his second coming with the clouds of heaven. Because Christ's future arrival, his second advent, you might call it, is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to his people and restoration of peace for a fallen world. And because we don't know when that day will come, we must stay awake, be ready, and walk in the light now. But this morning we stay in those same four books of the Bible, reading from Isaiah 11, Psalm 72, Matthew 3, and Romans 15. And while some of these texts may sound similar to what we read last week, they also bring up a new, different, and important theme. These readings remind us that the baby who came at Christmas and the Son of Man who will come again is our King. And we must be prepared for his royal entry. So open up to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Again, like we said, we'll also spend time in Psalm 72, Matthew 3, and Romans 15. So be prepared to turn. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But let's pray together before we read. Father, again, thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the many things that we have to celebrate this morning. Uh, Whether it's the Christmas season in general, whether it's the joy of a baptism, we have so much to be grateful for. And Lord, we thank you for those things. But we also recognize that this is a season of carrying heavy burdens. Uh, Some of us in the room may be grieving. Some of us in the room may be dealing with guilt or regret, unfounded or founded. So Lord, I pray that As much as we have to be thankful for, as much as we have to rejoice over, I pray that you would also comfort us if we're afflicted. I ask that you watch over us as we worship you. I pray that mornings like these would remind us of what's important, help us keep the main thing the main thing, but also encourage us when we're tempted to despair. And Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to read it this morning and so many other Sunday mornings and every other morning that we choose to. I pray that we would make full use of this gift of your word, not just today, not just in church, but day in and day out. Lord, shape us and form us in your image by your word for your glory. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your spirit. I pray that your spirit would open our hearts and minds to what you have to say to us today. And Lord, help us be your people for these next 
30 minutes of a sermon, the time that we have together here for the rest of this morning, and well beyond this morning as well. Help us be your people. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The prophet Isaiah is looking forward to the true king of Israel's arrival. Of course, there's a sense in which the nation of Israel was never supposed to have an earthly king to begin with. After all, they had a unique covenantal relationship with the one true perfect God himself. And when you have that, who needs a king? But after generations of being led by Moses, Joshua, some hit or miss judges, and the imperfect prophet Samuel and his wicked sons... The people of Israel wanted to be like all the nations around them. And that meant they wanted a king. But in 1 Samuel 8 verse 7, we learn that whether they realized it or not, the Israelites, when they asked for that earthly king, were rejecting God as their king. Samuel even gives them explicit warnings about how this will all blow up in their faces. Nevertheless, they persist in their desire. And God gives them what they want. God gives them an earthly king. Samuel anoints a tall drink of water named Saul to be the first human king of Israel. But Saul proves to be a failure. Saul is replaced by David, who is certainly an upgrade. However, even as great as David was, he falls short of the ideal for kings in scandalous fashion. So then along comes Solomon, 
to replace David. And while Solomon starts out well, he's wise, wealthy, powerful, as kings should be, right? He finishes poorly, to put it generously. And then after Solomon, well, that's when things really get ugly. Some of Israel's later kings were decent enough. Others were downright awful. But none of them is perfect. But the king Isaiah looks forward to in chapter 11, this one will be different. In line with God's promise in 2 Samuel 7, he will come from David's lineage. That's what phrases like the stump of Jesse or the root of Jesse indicate. Jesse being David's father. This king will be uniquely empowered by God's spirit. We see that in verse 2. And unlike all those previous kings, this one will rule with righteousness in verses 3 through 5. As one commentator puts it, this ruler will be a servant, not because he is too weak to dominate, but because he is strong enough not to need to crush. And this king will bring about peace. That's where we get those memorable verses in six through nine of the wolf and the lamb lying down together. But don't miss verse 10, because this king won't just rule over the territory of Israel. He'll be king over the entire world. But the question remains, who is this king? For that, look to Psalm 72, our second reading, starting in verse 1. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon Throughout all generations, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. 
His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. In the same way that you have different genres of books, movies, and music, there are different genres of psalms. And this one is considered a royal psalm. It may have been read, sung, or prayed at a king's coronation service. And ironically, Psalm 72 is attributed to King Solomon, who, as we just mentioned, didn't live up to the expectations that we just read. The king of Psalm 72 would rule rightly, especially in his care for the weak. We see that stressed throughout these verses. Under a good king's rule, God's people will flourish. That comes in verses 5 through 7. And like we just saw at the end of Isaiah 11, all the nations will honor a king like this. And how long will this good king reign? Well, verses 15 through 19 could not be any clearer. In the words of theologian Michael Squince Paladoris, he will reign forever. Forever. And by the way, on a quick side note, The Old Testament expectations for kings were well established. In Deuteronomy 17, God proactively lays out how the king should behave before Israel ever asked for one. The king must not be greedy. He must not get too cozy with the Egyptians. He must not be controlled by sexual desire. And he must fear God and obey his law. And then in Proverbs 31... Before anything is ever said about an excellent wife, we read about what makes for an excellent king. He must not be taken in by wine, women, and song, and he must pursue justice for the vulnerable. But even with all of these rules so clearly stated, and Psalm 72 backing them up, Israel's kings consistently fell short. Time and time and time again. Saul, David, Solomon, and everyone after them all missed the mark. But like we said last week in Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11 gives us the hope of knowing that it won't be this way forever. Yes, things are bad now. Israel's kings back then had a knack for failing to live up to their God-given responsibilities. And let's be honest, our earthly rulers today seem to have the same problem. But this passage reminds us that it won't be this way forever. A new, better, true king is coming. But the question still remains... Who is this king? Of course, we Christians know the answer to that question, don't we? We get to the New Testament and Jesus is born. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of the king. 
Jesus is explicitly identified as a descendant of David in Matthew chapter 1. The wise men call him the king of the Jews in Matthew 2. And in Luke 1, he's described as the heir of David's throne who will rule forever. And oh yeah, he'll be born by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now sure, Jesus may have had a somewhat rustic entrance. What with the manger and the shepherds? But make no mistake, the king has come. The king promised in Isaiah 11. The king who will fulfill the expectations of Psalm 72 is finally here. And it's none other than Jesus. Or at least that's what John the Baptist seems to think. That takes us to our third reading, Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. So some 30 years later, after Jesus is born, John the Baptist, who is one of the most interesting and important figures of Advent, lays out the red carpet for Christ, insisting that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You prepare for his arrival by repenting of sin in verses 7 through 10. John says that this person will baptize not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. And this person will judge the entire world. Verse 12. You might say that in John the Baptist's mind, Jesus checks every box laid out in Isaiah 11. And Psalm 72 as well, for that matter. Now, I suppose it's possible that John the Baptist ate one too many bugs. Or maybe, just maybe, he's right. 
Maybe Jesus really does finally answer the question of who this king is. But then again, not even a prophet like John the Baptist could see everything that would one day happen to Jesus. And if he had, maybe he would have been less eager to crown him. After all, when a crowd straight up tries to make Jesus king in John 6, he refuses the offer. And while Jesus gets a king's welcome when he enters Jerusalem a few years later in Matthew 21, he leaves the city as a condemned criminal in Matthew 27. Rather than ascending to and ruling on a throne, Jesus ascends to and dies on a cross. And if the true king is supposed to reign forever, then I guess that means that Jesus isn't king after all. But then a miracle happens. One far greater than anything that ever happened on 34th Street when Jesus rises from the dead. In Acts 2, the Apostle Peter insists that this proves Jesus to be the king. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul says that one day every knee will bow before Christ. And in Revelation 11:15, at the very end of this whole story of the Bible, the story that we find ourselves in right now, the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, where he shall reign forever and ever. So Jesus might not be the classic king that everybody expected. But make no mistake, in the person and work of Jesus, from the manger to the cross to the empty tomb to the right hand of God to the clouds of heaven, Jesus has come and will come again as nothing less than king. So what now? That takes us to Romans 15, starting in verse 1, our final reading. Paul writes, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So what do we do while we wait for the king to return? Simply put, we follow in his footsteps. But what does Romans 15:1 through 3 have to do with following Jesus as our king? And what does it have to do with Christmas? Well, Christ models perfect kingship by giving his life on the cross as a ransom for many. Remember all that talk in Psalm 72 about the king serving the poor and the weak and the needy. Well, there is no greater example of that than Jesus Christ dying to save sinners. People like us who are eternally poor and weak and needy. Because a good king puts the needs of others ahead of his own. He's selfless. He's generous. He's obedient to God. 
And Jesus is all of those things in the fullest, perfect sense. Unlike any imperfect king before him. And by the power of the Spirit, we're called to follow in his footsteps until he comes. We care less about our rights and more about the good of others, even when we think they're being unreasonable. We worry less about what we think we deserve and more about giving others the grace they don't deserve, even when they seem ungrateful. We worry less about our own desires, pleasures, and priorities, and more about others, even when it's tiring or frustrating. In this way, we imitate our king until he comes. A young lion named Simba once sang, I just can't wait to be king. And as children... Maybe as adults as well, we wrestle, scratch, and claw to see who can become king or queen of the literal or metaphorical mountain. And then once we get to the top, we will do everything we have to do to stay there. Why? Because it's good to be king. Everyone serves you, praises you, and listens to you. You get wealth, honor, and power. If you become king of the mountain, you get to look down on others in every sense. But our king is a little bit different. And he calls us to be different too. He is humble, not arrogant. He is generous, not greedy. He is righteous, not wicked. He is wise, not foolish. He is sacrificial and not selfish. He is not just fully human, like all the other kings. He is fully God. He's no Saul. He's no David. And he's no Solomon. And that's not a bad thing. This king was born in a manger, died on a cross, rose from the dead, ascended to God's right hand, and will come again with the clouds. And as we wait for that blessed hope, may we follow in his royal footsteps. Because it wasn't just the bugs talking. John the Baptist was right. The kingdom of heaven really was at hand when Jesus showed up. And in a very real way, the kingdom of heaven is still at hand now. So repent and believe the gospel. Follow Christ. Because the root of Jesse is coming. And when he arrives, the hearts that have not prepared him room will be chopped down at their roots and burned. The Israelites were wrong to desire a human king way back in 1 Samuel 8. They already had God. But this Christmas, we are right to long for our king's return. Because our king isn't just human. Our king is God. And by the power of the Spirit, may we follow in our King Jesus' footsteps until his kingdom comes in power and glory.
Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who is not just your son, but is our king. Lord, I pray that we would worship you as you deserve. You are our king. You are our Lord. You are our savior. And Lord, I pray that we would worship you, praise you, obey you, follow you, imitate you, love you as we are called to. Lord, I pray recognizing that your kingship is so much different than all the other kings and queens that we think of and fairy tales and the pages of history and even in our world right now. Knowing that your kingship is so different, I pray that that would give us all the more reason to thank you and praise you and adore you. But I also pray that we would follow you and your path to kingship, your path to glory was not easy. So, Lord, I pray that as we follow you, as we strive to be the people you call us to be, to be the people you've declared us to be, I pray that you would empower us to do that by your spirit, that we wouldn't just do it on our own, but we would be empowered by your spirit, that we would be challenged and encouraged by your word, that we'd be held accountable by our brothers and sisters in Christ to live up to this glorious royal calling that you've issued to us by your grace. And Lord, thank you that you came once as king, even if it didn't look all that royal. And thank you that you will come again in a time that will look very royal, according to the New Testament. Find us faithful when that day comes. I pray that we would welcome you as the king that you are, and that we would be ready for your royal entrance. We love you, we thank you, we praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name.